You're listening to the Co-Main Event Podcast. And now your hosts, Ben Folks and Chad Dundas. That's right. You're listening to another episode of the Co-Main Event Mixed Martial Arts Podcast. I'm your co-host from BleacherReport.com, Chad Dundas, and joining me as always from MMA Junkie and USA Today, it is your friend and mine, Mr. Ben Folks. Uh, ben, UFC 228 week. Woo! It is upon us. You fired up? I was going to ask you how hype you're feeling, man. Uh, I got to be honest that I'm feeling uh, a little bit... I'm having a little bit of trouble getting up for uh, UFC 228. It, it feels like the appetizer to UFC 229 yeah. a little bit. Uh, I we, we will talk about this at length during the rest of the show, but does it feel to you like the Tyron Woodley-Darren Till fight? It's awesome, right? But does it feel a little bit like kind of out of the out of the blue to you? Like, uh, I don't know. There's just something about it. Maybe it feels a little premature. Maybe there's something about it that makes me feel somewhat less hype, and I don't know that I can totally put my finger on what it is. I'll say this. I'm prepared to get hyped. I'm not there yet, but I am, I'm kind of on deck as far as hype goes. It won't take that much to push me over the edge. You know one prerequisite, however, I have? Darren Till needs to make weight. There is that. So you are prepared to get hype. You yes. are on the launch pad. Given the right circumstances, I will go all the way into hype. But, uh... I'm not there yet. Well, Ben, it's Tuesday. We didn't do a show yesterday because of Labor Day and uh, crowds of children overflowing both of our homes. Uh, We did the Fletch Book Club last Friday. Your wife, Sarah Aswell, joined us for that. Uh, I thought it came off pretty well. We got some good reviews on the internet. So if the folks out there in listener land have not heard that yet, you can always circle back. I assume out of pure co-main event withdrawal that people have already listened to it. Yeah, just in despair. But if you haven't, uh, go get it. Although... We should warn you, spoiler alert. Although, do we really have to say spoiler alert when we're doing a book club about a book that everyone was supposed to read? (laughs) That is a fair question. It's not like we're going to talk about the book and not spoil it, right? The kids these days, they expect the spoiler alert on everything. I guess that's true. Uh, What else? What else is happening? Uh, What what about the Patreon? Can you tell the kids how to get down with that? Where you go to patreon.com slash co-main event, and that's where you can get hip to cool things like a live streaming version of this podcast if you don't feel like waiting until it drops later on Tuesday afternoon, or if you just want to see what it looks like when we sit around in Chad's living room recording this thing, and you can see the birthday balloon that his daughter got that is hovering right over my shoulder. Yep, that's Elena of Avalor up there. Uh, okay, I don't, I'm don't. i going to say this right now. While I am aware of Elena of Avalor just by having two daughters— I don't think either one of them knows what Elena's story is, uh, and yet they just kind of act like, "Yeah, that's another that's a princess I'm supposed to know about." Right? Yeah, I think I think that's an, I don't I don't get it. That's an accurate description of Elena of Avalor, as far as I know. Is it a movie or a TV show? I'm going to tell you what I think I know. Okay. Although any of this could be wrong, and I expect to get fact checked by numerous dads out there who are listening to this show right now. Okay. I think Elena of Avalor is a spinoff. Of Sophia the First. Ah, okay. There was some crossover there. They spun Elena of Avalor off into her own show. It's not on uh, the streaming services, from what I can tell. You can't get it on Netflix. I don't think you can get it for free on, on Amazon Prime. Maybe if you have Hulu or whatever. 
uh, you can watch it. But because it's well, not, how on, do you watch it then? Well, we we don't watch it. That's what I'm saying. Like <laughs> it's it, not on the streaming services, so we haven't seen it. To answer your question, it is available on the television. Okay, wow. that's how you watch it. Wow, the old school television. I think it's on Disney Channel, which means that eventually it'll probably wind up on that over the top streaming service that Disney is going to launch at some point, where basically all the Disney shows and all the Star Wars shows will be on there. They're going to take them all off Netflix, put them on that. You better believe it. Uh, so yeah, we have not seen a ton of it. We've watched it like when we're on vacation. You know, you wind up in the hotel room. Right. Kids uh, got their minds blown by commercials. Yes. And uh, the fact that they don't just get to say what they want to watch and then it magically appears. The fact that like if you go to the bathroom and come back, we can't rewind the TV for right. you. Yeah. So we've seen a couple episodes of Elaine of Avalor. It seemed pretty Sophia-ish to me from what I've seen. Uh, there are some like flying flying jaguars in it. Okay. Tigers, flying tigers maybe. I don't know. That sounds like it's up your alley. So yeah. Yeah. Uh, I can't fully endorse it, but from what I've seen, it seems like fairly standard fare. <laughs> All right. Well, I really look forward to us spinning off this podcast into a review of children's movies and shows that we haven't really seen. We got music again this week from our guy Dion Rodriguez, a producer out of Deltona, Florida. If you like what you hear from him on the podcast, you can check out more over at soundcloud.com slash dbeats7. And again, that's the word beats with a Z, beats z. Three rounds, as usual, this week in the Co-Main Event Podcast. In round number one, the one thing everyone can agree on is that Darren Till won't be a welterweight for long. So anyway, about this weekend's welterweight title fight. And in round number two, Nico Montano, the UFC champion, the company forgot it had, gets a chance to shove her greatness in everybody's face this weekend. Also, though, she's fighting Valentina Shevchenko. And in round number three, Dana White estimates UFC 229 will do two million buys. At least. Two million, Ben. At least. That is a lot. Guess they better get start promoting that bad boy. All that plus, are you fucking kidding me and just saying stuff? But first, like we always do about this time, let's do a little bit of listener mail. Listener mail. First piece of listener mail this week comes to us from Eric Murphy. He writes, Jessica Andrade and Carolina Kovalkiewicz fight this Saturday, and it's going to be a damn crackerjack. You can't do much better than the winner fighting Champy Rose next. I like that now we're just whoever is the champion. One of the things you win along with the belt is the right to be called Champy. Okay, there you go. Champy just gets added to your name. Either winner, you got hashtag Woodwatch material. Carolina has a win over Rose. That video package practically writes itself. And Andrade is a goddamn wrecking ball. I'd watch her fight a bear and be worried for the bear. That seems to be getting overshadowed. So give it some of this of that sweet, sweet discourse. He's right, Ben. Uh, main card fight here of UFC 228 this weekend. Women's straw weight. Number one contender fight, I guess, if you will. Jessica Andrade versus Carolina Kovalkiewicz. Uh, we know what both these people are going to do. Uh, Jessica Andrade is going to go out there and try to take everybody's head off. Carolina Kovalkiewicz is going to show up and lean on the fence like she's waiting for a taxi to pick her up outside a discotheque. Going to throw you a, a sly wink, too, when she's introduced. Yeah, one of my, it's one of my favorite uh, pre-fight demeanors. Oh, yeah. Yeah, for sure. Who you got here? This is, this, is a, this is a solid fight here on the UFC 228 undercard, which, as I said earlier, seems like I'm having trouble getting hyped for it. Yeah, and it is a, a pretty solid undercard just all around, but there's not a lot of, I guess, big-name superstardom on the uh, the undercard, but there is, uh, every matchup is kind of interesting for one reason or another, and you have a lot of potential next title con- contenders. You know, the winner of this one, for example. By the way, you asked me to pick between these two. 
while it kind of hurts a little bit to go against Kovalkiewicz, I got to say Andraj. Yeah, they both come in on two fight win streaks. Uh, I don't have the odds queued up in front of me, so I can't tell you who is the the betting favorite. But, uh, you know, it feels not only like a uh, not only like a little painful to go against Kovalkiewicz here, but also when you pick Andraj to beat anybody, uh, we all have a mental picture in our head of what is going to happen to that person. Yeah. And yeah. it's not like a pleasant picture either. Uh, the odds, Andraj, a four to one favorite here. Oh, four to one. Yeah. Holy cow. That yeah. is, uh, that's longer odds than I would have expected, to be honest with you. Yeah. I mean, if I had sat you down and I had said, hey, Chad, uh, you tell me who you think is going to be like a, a bigger underdog, uh, Karolina Kovalkiewicz or champion Nico Montano. Would you have guessed that uh, Nico Montano would be twice the underdog that Kovalkiewicz is? Yes, but no, only like in lying. a vacuum. You're just lying. You're sitting there lying through your teeth. Well, we all, we've all sort of, we're going to talk about this in round number two, obviously, but I think we all have the expectation that that women's flyweight division uh, is kind of uh, Shevchenko Avenue, just waiting to put the sign up, right? <laughs> you got the sign ready? <laughs> we got the sign painted. Uh, we're going to go out and, and do the groundbreaking ceremony, uh-huh. break a big, do- big bottle of uh, Russian sparkling wine on the sign. The MMA gods wish you would go ahead and plant that sucker in some cement right now prematurely. They is, wish you would. Is this Kovalkiewicz versus Andrade thing where we expect Kovalkiewicz will come out and kind of try to do Yolanda Yajacek light against Andrade and sort of like outpointer on the feet? And Andrade will just have too much power. I don't know if, well, I mean, maybe she doesn't feel like she has a whole lot of other options. But uh, if Joanna and Jacek had had to fight that last fight against uh, Andrade in a three-round fight, might have been a different situation. You'll remember, uh, she she can sometimes end up in these situations where might have won if she hadn't lost yeah. kind of thing, yeah. you know? Yeah. So. If you're in a three-round fight and you got to kind of trust your ability to, to pull away from her as the rounds go on, there's just not a lot of room to make your case there. You can't, you can't be too patient in those. One of, the, one of the wrinkles that I'm interested in, in we coming up with for the co-main event podcast, maybe having a championship for who would have won if they hadn't lost. Yeah. Sort of like the who's got the I would have won if I hadn't lost strap. I don't know if Vitor Belfort is still carrying it around if he took it back to... Uh, to Brazil with him when he moved into quasi retirement, but still putting it out there that he's looking for a gig. Yeah. Maybe uh, Luke Rockhold, a strong contender. Oh yeah. There you go. He has a lot of fights that he would have won if he hadn't lost. Uh, UL Romero also. I mean, let's just, can we just say Chris Weidman also seems like a guy that, uh, was going to win a lot of fights till he lost. Okay. All right. This next uh, message is going to piggyback on the back of the Eric Murphy. This one from Gareth Lawrence. I don't know if we checked him out on, on Google, but uh, Assume he plays for Liverpool. Gareth Lawrence writes, Doff my eyes deceiveth, nailed it, me, but is the UFC 228 preliminary card one of the better undercards of late discuss? Uh, did you find him on there? Is he uh He may be an actor or a pro boxer. Okay. So it's possible Gareth Lawrence is a real person out there listening to the Co-Main Event podcast. Can't rule anything out. Uh, yeah, man. I think he's right. Right down to the fact that you've got uh, Diego Sanchez and Jim Miller 
on the uh, fight pass portion of the card. You got Aljamain Sterling. You got Jimmy Rivera versus John Dodson on the FX card. Carla Sparza versus Tatiana Suarez. Uh, if you're going to show up early for something and just plan on posting up on the couch for a good six hours, you might as well do it for UFC 228 because at least there's some names leading up to the pay-per-view card here. Did you mention Diego Sanchez's prelim fight here as something that you're looking forward to? Would you agree that it's like one of the more interesting Diego Sanchez fights in a while, though, just because of Craig White being kind of a like a surprise opponent for Diego Sanchez? Even Craig White himself said that he did not think he was going to get to fight Diego Sanchez at this stage uh, during his career. And it's it, like we, we talked about this fight once before on the podcast. And I think I said it's hard to tell if the UFC is trying to cue Craig White up for a win here and kind of use Diego Sanchez to to get this newcomer over, or if this just is just sort of like a slobber knocker where we're going to, uh, you, you know, shake everybody up in a crown royal bag and who see which winner spills out and, and work with it. Yeah, I'm going into this preparing to be sad. That's well, that's the mindset I have. The just, pragmatic realists among us must prepare to be sad every time Diego Sanchez goes out there. Yeah. But that doesn't necessarily make this any different from any Diego Sanchez fight you could book. Suppose you're right there. So I guess what you're saying is the sadness should kind of just spread out. You know what? You will already have been there for four fights. Maybe this is if you want to get the uh, seven layer bean dip ready for the uh, FX. The preliminaries are on FX here, not not Fox Sports 1, at least according to... uh, Wikipedia. Is there an important baseball game or something on? Maybe, yeah. It's like getting down to crunch time over there in MLB. Some a lot of pennant races. Big action in the Bundesliga? Could be. Could be anything. Yeah. Just uh, an important uh, Dodgers. I don't even know who else is in Padres? That yeah. Can't, can't think that the Padres are in contention, but who knows? Uh, yeah, man. Maybe, maybe Diego Sanchez versus Craig White is one where you just want to take a little break. Go outside. Cut the grass. Get the last mow in before fall sets in, Ben. Throw the ball for the dog. Maybe you'll send me a text when it's okay to watch again. <laughs> yeah, I'll do that. All right. As if I'm going to be watching the Fox or the uh, Fight Pass prelims there. Next question this week comes to us from Andrew Millington. He writes, my dudes, I'm having a crisis. Oh, no. So it's a cry for help here from longtime listener, friend of the show, Andrew Millington. As a shit-eating wild man, I should be vehemently opposed to a potential Logan Paul fight. But as a dad with YouTube-obsessed kids, I see this as an opportunity to share the sport I love with them. Beyond that, the overwhelming homogeny of the Reebok era has me missing some of MMA's charming weirdness. Am I the worst? He asks. All right, let's talk about... I appreciate this crisis. Let's talk about this, the potential of this Logan Paul thing, right? Because it took on some additional legs this past week. Uh, when Sage Northcutt, of all people, offered to welcome kind of like his social media doppelganger. Yeah, you can't have Sage Northcutt fight that guy. Logan. Well, that's one of the things I want to talk about is like, let's say Dana White, who has already said that the UFC is not into these one-off money grabs. Mm-hmm. Let's say he drives the Ferrari over to Logan Paul's house uh, and, and greets the kid with open arms because of the $800,000, $10 YouTube pay-per-views this kid sold. Uh what is the ideal matchup for you? I'm not even going to say ideal matchup. Ideal kind of matchup for you for a guy like Logan Paul in the UFC, assuming for a moment that we can't avoid it. Do you want to see him come in and like have another fight against another 
like YouTube vlogger, or would you like to see him come in and just get tuned by a, a Sage Northcutt style individual? If you have him fight another YouTube guy, then you're basically doing celebrity boxing. Yes. Uh, if you have him fight Sage Northcutt, maybe you are on the hook for manslaughter. <laughs> so there is a problem. I mean, what's Mike the Truth Jackson doing? He could be our guy, right? Like he could be our so you think you can fight kind of litmus test. Worked with worked, helped us to figure out the CM Punk situation. So maybe maybe we do that here. Although as far as the broad question about like am I the worst for kind of even considering it, missing the charming weirdness, I totally get that. Uh, and being like, hey, if it's something that exposes MMA to a new audience, then maybe it'll be long-term for the good. Uh, I understand all those things. And I also kind of like Cub Swanson, like his take on it. I don't know if you saw this yesterday where he was was basically like, I don't mind the idea of like celebrities, you know, trying to fight in MMA. Uh, Keep them on the prelims was his one stipulation, but also like helps give people an appreciation of how hard this is and what this right. actually is. Like I'd seen before, like I think an old funny tweet that made the rounds, like it makes around every Olympics is that each Olympic sport should contain a regular person for reference just so we can get an idea like, Oh yeah, no, if you were trying to get out there and do some speed skating, these people would just be blowing past you. So like helps you appreciate how good they really are at it. It could have some effect like that, but also one thing we're forgetting is that this is cage fighting and somebody might go in there and get the whole shit broke and then like you write back into the human cockfighting criticism that MMA used to have and a lot of people I think would be, I don't know if outraged or disgusted is the right word, but like there could be a strong backlash against MMA if some pretty YouTube boy gets in there and ends up like in a coma. Yeah, I will admit that part of having Logan Paul like show up in the UFC to fight would make me feel like I was spending my life's work covering Foxy boxing. And so okay. part of that makes me feel a little uncomfortable. I, I kind of feel like Logan Paul is the point of no return in, in, in feeling that way. Like, okay. CM Punk wasn't? Well, you would have thought that, right? Wasn't Logan Paul like a, like a high school wrestler or something? Was he? I think I, I saw heard that he tweeted. I saw that he tweeted that he would be excited to fight in the UFC because he would get to utilize his grappling background. I heard, I heard Tyron Woodley talking about it like he was some kind of like notable competitor in like state championship wrestling. Okay, well like, he's already was, a leg up on on Phil I know, Brooks then. That that makes him more qualified than CM Punk. Okay, so th- this then leads me to my next point that like one of the things that was cool in the past of having outsiders come into MMA and fight was seeing them get their ass kicked. Like, it kind of felt like the point of having James Tony come in was having Randy Couture kick his ass so we could all be like, aha, see yes. this? Professional boxer, former boxing champion, could not come into MMA and hang with the best. You could make the argument that, like, having Sean Gannon uh, come to the UFC and immediately fight Brandon Lee Hinkle was not an advantageous matchup for the former Boston police officer, Sean Gannon. Like, even Kimbo Slice, to a certain extent, it was kind of like, okay, like street brawler, guy who fights people in a boat, salvage yard, everyone wants to watch him fight, but he's getting beat up by the, all the actual MMA fighters. Yes. So then, like, CM Punk was a swerve. Because CM Punk was the first guy that they brought in uh, to capitalize on his previous notoriety, and they, it felt like they actually wanted him to win. 
I guess if you don't count Brock Lesnar, which I don't. Brock Lesnar, clearly legitimate MMA fighter. Uh, so we, there's definitely a swerve there. But Logan Paul is kind of like a different animal, right? Like, we start doing YouTube guys who sold uh, streaming pay-per-views for $10 on UFC cards. I feel like we have turned into something else. And I, that, you know what? Part of it, though, is is... There was a certain charm to like those old school pride events where a pro wrestler would fight a like former Japanese pro boxer. Somebody's going to be wearing a mask. Yeah. Um, I understand all the points you made and you could make every single one of them about CM Punk. No, true. So, I wasn't for that either. Yeah. Like I, I, just I guess my Logan point Paul is, in some ways worse. If we I, I feel like if you're saying like we would round a corner if we did this, my feeling is we already rounded that corner. Like. Is it's a legitimate argument to be made? Like, was it worth it? Uh, did you know? Did it give everybody what they thought they were going to get out of it? Is there a point where you do too much of this as you, you can't ever go back? Those are all like legitimate arguments to have. But we already did this shit. So, like the question about like would this be the worst thing to ever happen and would it actually work? Feel like to some extent they've been answered. I mean, from a purely athletic standpoint, CM Punk was an instance where they took like a 40 year old man that had never competed in a real like competitive sport before and threw him out there in the octagon. So maybe in that way, Logan Paul would kind of have a leg up uh, on Philip Jack Brooks. But uh, maybe it's the the style of fame to me. Like, you know, we we had seen pro wrestlers come into pride. We had seen Brock Lesnar come into the UFC. And like so capitalizing on that brand of fame for CM Punk seemed somewhat uh, you know, more legitimate to me, or like maybe not legitimate, but understandable. Like YouTube, if we're gonna take YouTube guys. This is you just being an old fuddy duddy. Maybe because to the maybe. kids, YouTube celebrity is a legit type of fame. For, it is for not, a fight, though. They already did the fight, and I they, guess they so. sold a hell of a lot of paper. All right, what about Andrew Millington's specific question, though, that he could go all in, so to speak, on the Logan Paul fight as a way to uh, bond with his kids. <laughs> Kind of like me and my dad going to a college football game together. Yeah, except that uh, in this instance, you guys both sit there and watch some guy get a hole beat into his face. Which we have done before. My dad once, I believe we watched Chuck Liddell fight, maybe it was Jeremy Horn. It was one of those uh, Chuck Liddell title fights where they, they found him a middleweight. Might have been like uh, the second Babalu fight or something. But my dad did exclaim that Chuck Liddell was quote unquote sandbagging. So... <laughs> Well, that's a thing that your dad totally says during an MMA event. Are you with Andrew Millington on this? If the girls at home were big Logan Paul fans, would you uh, would you sit down and watch the the watch him fight in the UFC as a as a way to bond? I mean, I feel like we get a lot of bonding opportunities elsewhere. Um, I don't know. I mean, I can see how it would work if. You know, especially if you've got like a 14 year old kid who like watches YouTube and he thinks that you're, you know, the old man doesn't know anything. And uh, then you're like, okay, this this guy you like is coming into the world that I kind of know here and it's going to go badly for him. Yeah, you guys could sit down there and figure out like which one of you knows what the hell he's talking about. That seems like a a fun family uh, bit of potential disaster. But uh, yeah, I I don't hate it just because. We've already kind of slid in this direction. And so it's like, I don't know if there's a whole lot of legitimacy to lose, I guess is what I'm saying. Next question this week comes to us from Anthony Prokopchuk, who, by the way, is also the person responsible for the co-main event podcast intro music. Hey. He chefed it up and won that contest that we did. 
many years ago now. Distant memory. He writes, oh, you didn't know? It's in all caps, so I assume I'm supposed to say it in road dog voice. Yeah, (laughs) nice. He writes, this past weekend, the Sears Center in Chicago, Illinois, was host to the largest non-WWE slash WCW professional wrestling show since 1993. The show featured top global talent, including my hometown boy, Kenny Omega, and Montana's own Treasure State Wrestling alumni, Flip Gordon. Before you go on, is this is this all in? Yeah. That we're talking about? In. Okay. Went down over the weekend. I heard about it, but did not investigate what it is. That's what we're talking about. Yes. All in. Okay. Yes. Uh, does the success of an indie pro wrestling show give MMA fighters a possible roadmap to a future without UFC-style promoters? Uh, here we had a WWE cast off in Cody Rhodes and independent stars, the Young Bucks, leverage their appearance on various smaller wrestling promotions, along with a finely tuned YouTube slash social media strategy strategy to generate enough buzz to sell out a 10,000 seat arena in 29 minutes as the road warriors of MMA journalism. That's us. Okay. Oh, okay. Oh, what a rush. Uh, <laughs> please drop a discussive doomsday device on me. All right. So... Can you help explain to me exactly what the mechanics of the all-in thing? Because I heard about it and I assumed it was a WWE event. Really? Yeah. You're not just doing the thing right now that you're the MMA guy, so you got to pretend like you're too cool to know what all-in was. I, I mean, I, I knew that people were talking about it and that the MMA people who are into pro wrestling were excited about it, but I, how would I know what, who is promoting that and who isn't? I'm not going to sit here and try to pass myself off as an expert, but like Elena of Avalor... Yeah, I can try to break some of it down for you. Uh, so basically, you, you know who Cody Rhodes is, the yes. son of the American Dream, Dusty yeah. Rhodes, has been one of the guys who left uh, the WWE uh, family and has since struck out on the independent circuit and become a big success uh, wrestling as an independent contractor during this sort of renaissance of independent professional wrestling in America. And this all, all in event that happened over the weekend, I think you could argue, is sort of like the high watermark of the rise of independent wrestling in America right now. Uh, It started out with a tweet from our guy, Dave Meltzer, several months ago. Uh, You know Meltzer's on Twitter basically all day answering questions, right? His patience for that astounds me. Uh, So at some point, somebody asked him if Ring of Honor, the independent wrestling promotion that uh, Cody Rhodes and the Young Bucks wrestled for, could sell out a 10,000-seat arena. Uh, Meltzer replied, I think he said, not anytime soon. And Cody Rhodes was essentially said, Dave, I'll take that bet. So uh, the Young Bucks and Cody Rhodes... So you did it to prove a point to Dave Meltzer? Inle- well, yeah, unless you think that maybe that was a kind of a work. Uh, they uh, <laughs> Everything's got to be a work, doesn't it? They uh, So they got the Sears Center in Chicago, 10,000-seat arena. Basically, they invited everybody, all of the big names in independent pro wrestling, everybody who was available... Uh, and they sold it out in like a half hour or whatever it was. And then this past weekend actually uh, actually had the event. Uh, and it seemed like a huge success. Everybody that I talked to seemed like they really enjoyed it. Uh, the the real hardcore wrestling people that I spoke with said that described it as being pretty okay, like in terms of a wrestling show. But like by all measure, a huge success for this non-WWE wrestling event uh, to have this sort of impact on the subculture and to sell out that quickly. And as far as I'm concerned, uh, and this is the part that maybe at some point can pertain to MMA, it was kind of like a victory for labor in mixed martial arts, kind of apropos to have it. In pro wrestling, you mean? Yeah, right, in pro wrestling. Kind of apropos to have it the weekend of Labor Day, because like this was the boys, so to speak, 
kind of taking things over. And I guess... Uh, Seizing and, the means of production? Yeah. And Anthony Prokopchuk's question, I think, is is well-formed. Well like, could this kind of thing happen in MMA and does All In sort of point point the way for MMA fighters? Because as everyone who listens to this show knows, uh, MMA is a uh, sticky wicket in terms of like labor versus management issues. I guess my big question would be what is the contractual situation of these guys? Because that's the big obstacle I see to doing something like this in MMA is that who out there is not like who out there that is somebody people want to see um, that is not already tied to somebody else who would not let them right. do this. Yeah. And like, that's the, that's maybe the biggest sticking point is because the UFC does have such a stranglehold on talent and particularly talent that people want to watch. The same is sort of true of WWE, but because of this rise, like I was talking about of independent pro wrestling, there definitely is a market for that in America right now. I don't know that there's like a, a, a following, like a comparable following of independent MMA stars. You would it would kind of have to be people that had once fought in the UFC and were now kind of like on their way down, or people who were just choosing not to be there. And right now, I don't necessarily know that that exists. Although I think that the idea of like being less beholden to people like Dana White and people like WMEIMG should be more attractive to yeah. the MMA workforce. I guess another obstacle you would face would be. Uh, you know, and with All In, you can kind of show up and do a one-night-only professional wrestling show, and it's a huge success, and, like, there's no promise of any more, and that's kind of okay. I think that there probably will be more in this case, but, like, you can't do that in, in fighting. Like, you could do, like, a one-off fight card, but I think to have, like, a true success for MMA fighters, you would almost have to have, like, an ongoing promotion. Yeah. To have champions and give people, uh, you know, reliable work that they could get paid for, et cetera, et cetera. There's also the difference in that with pro wrestlers, the it's the environment seems a little more conducive to like, hey, let's all get together and make our own show mm-hmm. because it's kind of a collaborative industry to right. begin with in a lot of ways. Right. And MMA fighters have less of a collaborative attitude when it comes to working together. Yeah, that's true. I find. If anybody was going to do it, it would have to be like a Conor McGregor style person. Or like a Nick Diaz who already did it with his uh, Stockton event. Yeah, yeah, solid point. I mean, that's, yeah. The Stockton thing was like an an independent MMA show that Nick Diaz happened to promote. Like, if you were able to cobble together like more big stars for the event, I think you could have more of a a direct corollary with with something like All In. But like, that's not a bad example, actually, that Nick Diaz actually did it. Um, We got time for one more here. Sure. Last question this week comes to us from Jeremy Sexton. He writes, uh, it's always hard to know from the outside what to believe in squabbles between MMA personalities uh, when we're on the outside and don't know the situation all that well. But I'm just saying, does Donald Cerrone's appearance on the Joe Rogan podcast peppered with remarks that at a minimum toe the line with homophobia, transphobia, etc., sort of point to him telling the truth? about the situation at Jackson Winklejohn. It seems like if he had any impulse to try to make himself look good on that podcast, he might have, you know, not said the other F word a bunch of times, especially after being forced by the UFC to donate to LGBT causes for doing the very thing, that very thing not long ago. Am I out to lunch here? I like that phrase. Am I out to lunch? So this is like a different spin on the Cowboy Cerrone thing, basically saying, does it give Cerrone more credibility 
in any argument between him and Mike Winklejohn and the Jackson Wink MMA team because clearly Donald Cerrone is not taking any steps to make himself feel more likable. Well, I mean, I never doubted, I never felt like Donald Cerrone was going to go up there and just straight up lie to anybody about, like, that's right. not... The thing about Donald Cerrone, no one, no one is out here saying Donald Cerrone is not telling us how he really feels. I believe he's telling us his truth. Yes, he's he's preaching on his truth out there when it comes to this rift between him and his longtime uh, fight company, and or fight team, I'm sorry. I can see how it probably seems this way to Donald Cerrone. I think the the truth, if you want to call it that, is probably some blend between them. I mean, I think they probably are both sides being like, here's how we perceive the situation going, and I think they're both telling you the truth as they believe it to be. Yeah. Uh, but that doesn't necessarily tell you like a black and white version of who's right and who's wrong. Is I think if you tell me that Donald Cerrone feels like, hey, the gym decided this was the future and you were the past, and so they're going to go ahead with this one and, and make sure that they get paid this way, yeah, I could believe that they would do that. I mean, not only because that's just kind of how MMA gyms often roll, but how Jackson Winklejohn... They've been accused of that before. If you look at the whole Rashad Evans, John Jones situation, like frankly, Diego Sanchez, right? Left right. the team for like, a while. Yeah, like back in like 2007. And now is back and one of their staunch supporters in this particular uh, yeah, feud. But he accused them of very similar kind of thing. But then at the same time, for Mike Wigglejohn to say, you know what? Cowboy is not exactly around here a lot helping other people out when he doesn't have a fight booked. I, I believe that as well. Yeah. And some of the things that I've seen inside that gym suggest that that's probably the case. The fact that he has this whole ranch out there where he's, you know, importing like coaches and training partners to go do his thing and kind of like by its very nature, like siphoning off some of the, uh, the personnel from the gym. Like I can see how the people at the gym would be like, we can't allow this to go on indefinitely. So I, I feel like both sides probably have valid points to make there. And some of that is just like, kind of built into the structure of the whole MMA fight team. Yeah. yeah, I think it's a situation where, like you said, kind of like everybody is making all of their valid, their own valid points. You can kind of see both sides of the equation if, because anybody in mixed martial arts who has the opportunity to sort of establish a brand like Cowboy Cerrone has had the opportunity to do, you can't really fault them for trying to make the most of it. Uh, very few fighters have that opportunity to sort of become a known figure who has the kind of like uh, following and reputation that Cowboy Cerrone has. So for him to sort of like split off and go kind of try to start his own gym essentially with the BMF ranch, even though critics say that that gym is only to serve Cowboy Cerrone and nothing else. Like it's understandable that he would, that he would want to try to do that. It's also understandable if you are Jackson Winklejohn and you just spent all of this money to like uh, create a huge new sprawling uh, MMA complex for your team to train in that has like a juice bar and a clinic and all kinds of different stuff in it uh, that you might not think all that kindly of like one of your fighters kind of going out on his own while you, I at least assume, are trying to like make good on that financial commitment to like remodeling your entire gym. Uh so, uh, I don't know, man. Like, it seems like this was bound to happen at some point. Uh, like we said in the BOC this past week, I don't think anybody knew that Mike Perry was going to be the catalyst That's to like, the bring this all to, to the surface. Yeah. But, like, it's not really all that surprising that there would be some 
I don't know, bad blood is too strong a phrase, but like some disagreement between Cerrone and Jackson Winklejohn. It's not all that much of a surprise that Jackson Winklejohn would want to train other fighters. Uh, and if Cowboy Cerrone's just not making his full-time home there, like, I don't know, if Mike Perry came to me and was like, hey, can I come train at your gym? I would probably have a hard time saying no if I were in the shoes of of the people at Jackson Winklejohn. Especially when you're thinking about how you got to get paid because that is the weird thing about the way the whole MMA team training thing works is how how much coaches are always out there relying on like I got to get this guy to give me a portion of his purse right let me rephrase a little bit the reasons that I would give second thoughts to training Mike Perry would not be that I was worried about offending Cowboy Cerrone Mike Perry has his own stuff going on, obviously. Anyway, that's going to do it for Listener Mail this week. If you have a question, a comment, a concern that you would like to air to the Co-Main Event podcast on future episodes, you know how to do it. Go to the website, comainevent.com, and click the link in the top right-hand corner of the screen that says email the podcast. That'll get you in touch with us. While you're there, go ahead and sign up for the Breakfast of Champions newsletter that comes out every Friday morning to catch you up on the news and notes that we miss on all the days that we're not recording the podcast. Stuff always happens. News always breaks. The newsletter itself is short. It's informative. We would love to tell you it's funny. And as we always say, if you don't like it, it's really easy to unsubscribe. As for right now, though, we are going to go ahead and get started with round number one. Well, Ben, here we sit, roughly five days as we record this, away from the welterweight title main event of UFC 228, where Tyron Woodley, your champion, is going to take on challenger Darren Till. And I couldn't help but notice that one of the headlines up at MMAfighting.com on this day says, Darren Till, quote, I want to earn my stripes at middleweight before fighting for the title. And as I said at the top of the show, Ben, like, I'm feeling weird about this Darren Till, Tyron Woodley fight, even though I like both guys. I think they're fun to watch. I'm just like having a hard time getting hyped up for it. And maybe one of the things that is in some ways like uh, undermining my ability to to get over the top with excitement for this thing is the idea that Darren Till, if he does unseat Tyron Woodley and win the welterweight title, is just going to move up to middleweight anyway. And we're going to be back in a 170 pound vacant title situation. Like, is that crazy? Am I just like... Am I putting the cart before the horse? Because I look at Darren Till saying, oh, you know, I want to fight at middleweight for a while before I fight for the title. And I'm thinking, slow, slow our roll here, everyone. Maybe he's doing the the anti-Brandon Vera. Instead of doing the thing where you look all the way past winning one belt to winning two belts, he looks past winning one belt to winning one belt and then building his name in another <laughs> division. Okay. It's a, like a more you know, prudent approach to the normally outsized MMA ambition. Well, you mentioned earlier at the top of the show that one of the things that is preventing you from firing off into the stratosphere about this thing is that you want to see Darren Till make 170 pounds and his title fight with Tyron Woodley be certified. Like, uh, is the idea that Darren Till, like winning this title and going to middleweight only exacerbating the UFC's current problems? Like, is that on your radar or am I the only one thinking about that? Man, I will cross that bridge when I get to it. I'm not even worried about that right now. You just want to see the fight. Well, I also, I am excited by the idea of this fight and by what it could be. But I also have to remind myself that, you know how we like to say styles make fights? 
That is, we do like to say that. We, we be a, saying that all the time in this sport. And it is not difficult at all for me to imagine this as an incredibly boring fight. It could be a really exciting fight. And it could, you know, be somebody gets finished quickly, shocking or otherwise. Or it could be five rounds of guys trying to get their footwork just right. Five rounds of guys looking at each other, both of them just about to do something, waiting for the other guy to do something first. I could imagine that playing out very easily in this one. Stephen Thompson part three? Is that what you're saying? Kind of. Uh, I mean, you look at Darren Till's fight with Stephen Thompson, and it's not like Tyron Woodley is going to go out there and get impatient and decide he has to just rush in and wreck somebody. I mean, that's kind of been his whole thing. I could see them both just kind of like both biding their time, waiting for a big moment that never quite comes. And at the same time, though, like on paper, this should be a good fight because Darren Till, big guy, good counter striker, uh, going to be tough for Tyron Woodley to to take down, but also does not need to take Tyron Woodley down in order to execute his game plan. It seems like he ought to present some different challenges to Tyron Woodley than what we've seen recently. And I am excited about seeing that because I feel like Tyron Woodley is one of those athletes where I'm excited about what he can do in those moments when he really does it. Right. And what you need, it seems like, is somebody to force him to do it more. I just don't know if that's going to be Darren Till yeah. in this particular fight. And like excited for Tyron Woodley, but man, we haven't seen the guy fight since uh, last July. Uh, against Damian Maya at UFC 214. It just feels like they have had an awfully hard time both finding an opponent for Tyron Woodley and like actually putting together uh, a, a, a fight that comes off. So like it will be good to see the UFC welterweight champion get out there and have a fight. Uh, does it feel rushed to you to put Darren Till in here? Like for whatever reason, it feels a little bit rushed to me, even though you look at the guy's record and he's he's undefeated at 17-0-1, which is impressive for anybody. Uh, I believe he, believe he is 5-0-1 in the UFC, been in the UFC for uh, going on three, four years. Like when I think of it, I'm like, oh, I don't know if Darren Till is ready for a guy like Tyron Woodley. I don't know if he if he deserves to get boosted into the uh, a title fight like this. But then I look at the kid's actual resume and I think, oh, I don't know, like maybe Maybe this is the right timing for him. Well, it is weird to get into the title fight after you missed weight by like three pounds for your last fight. And I don't know if you saw Stephen Thompson's reaction to it, where he was like, why is this fight even happening? You can tell Stephen Thompson's fired up because when asked if he thought he would have gotten the same opportunity had he gotten the judge's decision in that fight, he responded, heck no. <laughs> Which, whoa, just simmer, cool, cool simmer down, man. There's cool kids jets, around. Wonder Boy. Uh, but... Yeah, like he he made some good points though, where he was just like, "I don't understand why this fight is happening. I don't understand how you get a title shot this way." And the answer though is that the UFC decided there needed to be a welterweight title fight on this date, and Colby Covington was in line and couldn't make the date, and so we just went down the list and we're like, "Who can we call who will say yes?" Okay, Darren Till. Like that's how it happened. So that's that's how we ended up here. Right. One of the interesting X factors at play here also, Ben, is that Tyron Woodley is not a guy who is going to get pushed around in terms of, uh, you know, being forced into taking a fight that he doesn't want to take. And he has flat said he's not fighting Darren Till uh, if Darren Till can't make the weight. He's not fighting Kamara Usman as a replacement. So uh, this is an interesting situation here. Or did he say he would fight Darren Till? Did he say he would fight Darren Till no matter what he weighed in at and, and that he wouldn't fight Kamar Usman? Now I've confused myself. But uh, we know that Tyron Woodley is is a, a guy of his own 
uh, designs. He's like a, uh, his own man marching to the beat of his own drummer. And the UFC is not going to make Tyron Woodley do anything he doesn't want to do. Yes. So, and that is an interesting factor here, considering uh, the sort of myriad ways that this could go wrong. Uh, let's say we get a 170 pound Darren Till. They they do the thing. They they face off at the uh, ceremonial weigh-ins. Nobody slips on a banana peel. Everybody is a go. It's Friday evening. At that point, do you start to get hype? Or are you still just like looking so far ahead in the future that you're like, man, this doesn't matter? No, I mean, from a like a fist fighting standpoint, this is a good fight. It's a fight that I think uh, I'm excited to see. Like you said, the matchup of styles has the potential to be a five round circle fest where you just kind of uh, go out there and, and uh, take the measure of the octagon. Uh, but I'm hoping that doesn't happen. I'm hoping that we get into uh, more of a Robbie Lawler, Tyron Woodley type scenario where everybody comes out guns blazing and uh, you know, somebody ends up falling down. Uh, so yeah, I'll be excited for it. Like, I guess the real questions only really start to cross my mind if Darren Till wins and becomes a champion, which I don't necessarily know. Uh, if I would pick it that way, am I crazy? Like to me at this weight, at this time, it's real hard to pick against Tyron Woodley. Do you agree with that? Or like you yeah. see Darren Till giving him some trouble. If it does though, end up in the kind of fight where they're both kind of standing there waiting for the big moment to happen. Those can be a, a knuckleball when it comes to the judges. You you never know exactly which way those are going to go. And the same thing with the Darren Till's fight against Stephen Thompson. He could easily lost that fight on the scorecards. You take a chance when you do that. So in that sense, I don't know. And, you know, big guy who hits hard. Yeah, he, it's not out of the question to think that uh, he could hurt Tyron Woodley and do something there. I was really surprised to see how even the odds are for this one. It's basically a pick em. Really? Yeah. Uh, looking at, like, I see some places where uh, Darren Till is a very slight favorite. Um, and a, at least one or two places where Tyron Woodley is a slight favorite. But for the most part, you're looking at kind of like, Minus 110 across the board. So you're telling me it's an even fight and nobody knows what's going to happen. Anything could happen, Chad. There you go. If you needed a reason to watch, that's one. Uh, you want to do Are You Fucking Kidding Me? And then we'll move on to round number two, Ben. Yeah. Are we going to get together on the Are You Fucking Kidding Me this week? Do we I have a joint Are You Fucking Kidding Me happening? I think we are. I think we are. Uh, this was a pretty easy call. Yep. After you actually see what went down. Uh, I know you wrote the recap over on the MMA Junkie. Uh, you want to tell the kids at home what uh, what happened across the pond this weekend? Yeah, yeah, because we're going to end up here talking about uh, some some German MMA, which is not something that uh, we do all that often. But uh, Stefan Putz. Hmm. Very he, German name. Yeah, he goes out there at uh, GMC 16 in, uh, in Köln. Okay, I'm going to have to check that out and find out where that streams. At first, you see just the weigh-in antics, and yep. what you see is him come up to the stage carrying what seems to be a very heavy, very large duffel bag. He's laboring, carrying this duffel bag. You think Frankly, he's... looks like a hockey bag, because yeah. you got to have a big bag to stuff all that stuff in. What is it, full of gold, you're wondering to yourself? <laughs> you're, you are. Is that, your mind goes straight to gold, if you're Chad Dunnis. Well, he's got duffel bags loaded up with something real heavy. And then he reaches in the duffel bag and pulls out a person. A literal, actual, breathing human being comes out of the duffel bag. But not until he, like, takes off his shirt, weighs in, takes off at least one tennis shoe, and shakes hands with everybody on the stage. Then he goes to the duffel bag, and you're thinking, is he going to get it? Is he pulling out a mask? Going is for he, the gold right now? Yeah. 
Does he want does he want to show his opponent the gold? What's at stake? Nope. Human being. That's right. A little person dressed in the Terminator leather jacket with the Terminator mask. He first he puts them on his shoulders, which I'm not sure what that was supposed to convey. Like in Bojack Horseman when uh the agent's boyfriend is a bunch of kids yes. under, underneath a trench coat. <laughs> Uh, and then takes it down off his shoulders, and he's there like posing in the in the for the pictures afterwards. Um, when I asked around a little bit and asked my my go to source for German MMA knowledge, you you have one of those? Oh yeah, got I got a guy. Okay, I got a guy okay. in Germany. I'm sorry, I didn't and mean he, to question your credentials. He was like, "This is this guy's thing is being a Terminator," and the, he even has a video on YouTube where they are like. They go through the process of making him the Terminator, the okay. T-800. They're using like an iPhone uh, to make it look like it's technical equipment. It's narrated by some guy who sounds like Werner Herzog. Uh, and you're like, wow, he is really committed to this gimmick. And according to my guy in Germany, it might be the most interesting thing about him is his Terminator gimmick. Okay. That doesn't speak well to what happens, as Jim Ross would say, from bell to bell. No, it does not. Also, like I spent a solid 10 minutes after seeing this thing and kind of understanding what he was going for, being like, was there a little person in the Terminator movies? Why? I can, I can yeah, no, almost like, convince myself. Like, why Why go with little person here? No idea. Why not have, like, a team of dancing Terminators behind you? Why? Although, you know, you see the photos, and it seems like an iconic MMA image of these two fighters standing there at their weigh-in. Uh, and then there's a little guy in the Terminator mask standing in front of them. Just like the kind of thing where if you didn't know the context and you weren't there, you would you would never figure it out. No. You fucking kidding me? You fucking kidding me? That's going to do it for round number one. We'll be right back with round number two. of interesting betting lines, Chad, when's the last time you can recall that a champion in the first title defense goes out there as an 8-1 to one dog against the challenger who is about a 12 or possibly even as high as 16-1 to one favorite? I don't know if I've seen that one too often before, and yet that's exactly what we have here where Nico Montano, who has... The strap is going out there talking about how, like, she has to shock the world by winning and retaining the title against Valentina Shevchenko. Yeah. Maybe, maybe, everybody just assuming that this is Shevchenko's belt and all she has to do is show up and claim it. Are we teeing one up for the MMA gods here? Or is this one where the odds makers kind of know what they're talking about? Maybe, man. I don't know. Nico Montano is just a mystery wrapped in a riddle. As the inaugural UFC women's flyweight champion here, uh, she won the season of the Ultimate Fighter. Correct. That's correct. She got three wins in a row. She beat Lauren Murphy and Barb Honchak uh, as part of that show. So both legit contenders yeah, in that division. Yeah. Um, she is only four and two as a professional. So obviously, sort of uh, potentially a surprise winner. She beat uh, Roxanne Modafferi at the at the final to actually claim the gold. Um, she's twenty nine years old. She has a uh, an intriguing story, right? Being, I believe, from the Navajo Reservation uh, down there in Arizona, uh, becoming a, 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 a professional fighter and now kind of out of nowhere being the UFC uh, women's 125-pound champion. Uh, 
But that, like I said, that was that's December of 2017 that she wins the title. And then we have not heard much from her since then, except perhaps she was dealing with an injury and then did had not... surgery or like had her tonsils out or something, right? Did not take kindly to a couple of reports about her in the media. Uh, Mainly, uh, she felt like Ariel Helwani was suggesting that she was trying to avoid uh, signing on to defend the title. Um, but yeah, I mean, it has been kind of the dominant narrative for a while that it seems like, well... All right, you technically have a belt around your waist. You're going to have to beat Valentina Shevchenko before everybody starts looking at you like a champion. Is that fair? I mean, there seems like it doesn't seem like people arrived at that conclusion by accident, and yet it also doesn't seem like the tough tournament really had the desired effect if the person who comes out of it, who wins the entire thing and win and is crowned champion at the end, then has to go win another fight before anybody will really buy it. Well, yeah, it speaks to the thing that we have been, that has been the dominant storyline around the ultimate fighter uh, for a long, long time, right? That like nobody's watching, despite the fact that Dana White contends that the brand is strong. And once you factor in uh, streaming services and DVRs and all that stuff, like, I don't know, 80 million people are watching it or whatever. Uh, It seems like if you didn't watch that season, which it's it feels as though few MMA fans did, and you know maybe you didn't watch the the event where she beat Roxanne to win the title. Maybe you haven't even seen Nico Montano fight, and maybe you like Valentina Shevchenko is is the, simply the known commodity here and a person that has been really really good aside from uh, losses to people who are currently champions or were were champions in the UFC. Uh, in Amanda Nunez, and then I guess her previous loss was to Liz Carmouche, but like high-level competition. Maybe you did see Nico Montano fight, but you kind of forgot about it because you've watched roughly 10,000 fights since then. I know you love it when I make my analogy to the game horse. Yeah, all right. You're a big fan of my horse analogy. Okay, hold on. Let me get mentally prepared for this. Go but ahead. when you win a game of horse mm-hmm. in certain circles... You got to come back and make the the prove it shot. You got to hit the shot again I've just to actually be way. the winner. I don't understand you people. Just, Where did you pick this up? I don't know, man. Prison? Maybe. <laughs> yes. Is that how you guys did it in prison? Prison games of horse are apparently different than they are down there in Claremont, California. I guess in prison they don't they don't fuck around with their horse. This is the prove it shot, right? For Valentino or for uh, Nico Montano, because if she wins this, she beats the bullet. She beats the person that we thought uh, she was just keeping the belt warm for. Then you got a, a women's flyweight champ that uh, everyone can agree on. Okay, let's let's imagine that scenario for a second. Let's imagine the scenario where Nico Montagna goes out there as an 8-1 to one underdog in her first title defense, beats Valentina Shevchenko convincingly. Like, there's nothing weird about it. There's, nothing, there's not even a woulda won if she hadn't lost kind of thing. Just goes out there and trucks her. And does everybody then go, all right, we stand corrected. Nico Montano is the real deal. Let's get on the Nico Montano hype train. Or do we just stand around dumbfounded, not knowing what to make of it? Well, I think we all would kind of stand around dumbfounded, but I think both those things are true, right? Wouldn't, or, or wouldn't do, we you... then, do we then look to the next person and be like, okay, but she's not really the champion until she beats, you know, whoever. Well, who else would she beat? <laughs> Valentina Shevchenko is the whole, the show in this division, right? Well, for now. Like we 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 had Valentina Shevchenko fight Priscilla Castuera 
in Brazil in February for no other reason. That was sad. Aside to make Valentina Shevchenko look like the absolute future at this weight class. So if Nico Montano beats her, I don't know what you do besides nod your head and say, yes, well done. Nico okay. Montano. Well, then let's say the opposite happens. Like what everybody expects to have happen happens. Uh, Shevchenko proves that, as uh, one bare knuckle boxer I read about said it once, that all all she needs to uh, in order to beat Nico Montano is a shave and a haircut. As far as her preparation goes, she goes out there and rolls right through. Say it's another one of these where you're like, man, this seems like a borderline abusive to even allow this fight to continue going on. The same way it was with Priscilla Cachoeira. And then Nico Montano is your champion. Does that vault Valentina her? Shevchenko. Uh, yes, Valentina Shevchenko is the champion. Does that vault her into like a, a new level because we saw her absolutely brutalize somebody who was technically the belt holder? Or does it just feel like, okay, this was the point we assumed we would get to, so now let's start from here? Do people take it seriously as like, wow, you beat the shit out of the champion? Well, I mean, I think it confirms what a lot of people thought about Valentina Shevchenko, right? That she's the sort of person that that uh, is supposed to break out. And if not for those losses to Amanda Nunez and what might turn out to be uh, a higher weight than her natural division, uh, maybe she would be a much bigger star than, than she is at this point. You know, if she has the gold around her waist, I think that, that creates a lot of really interesting scenarios at 125 pounds, uh, which is a division that frankly has needed some help getting off the ground here. Uh, if you are Valentina Shevchenko, I think you get on the mic and say, Joanna Jacek, you absolutely suck. Uh, Chael Sonnen style. You invite her to come up. Let's let's have a fight for the title. Then you have a like a bona fide, pretty big fight on your hands in the women's flyweight division. Uh, and frankly, on the women's side of things in MMA right now, everybody's jumping around. A lot of uh of weight crossing going on with uh, Nunez and Cyborg are going to do it at the end of the year. So. Uh, why don't we have Valentina Shevchenko versus Joanna Yedjechik on that same card, man? I don't know. I'll tell you what. If Valentina Shevchenko wins this fight and says that Joanna Yedjechik absolutely sucks, I'll buy you a Coke. I, I mean, don't, I don't does see it, it have to be those exact yep. words? Exact words. All right, well, I doubt that's going to happen. Uh, but then, Pepsi then, is not an acceptable substitute either, so don't even think it. Valentina Shevchenko has the potential to be maybe a, uh, even an important linchpin in the UFC's plans to head over there to Russia. If you've got a Russian champion on your hands at that point. So I don't know. You don't know. We don't know anything about this. What's your level of hype for this one? N- n- almost zero. Like I'm, I'm interested to see what happens. Like what, uh, what Nico Montano brings to the table. Whether Valentina Shevchenko is the is the, you know, the the uncrowned champ this whole time. But like, doesn't it kind of feel like we've done nothing with this division? Like we haven't. Like there's a story to tell about Nico Montano. I don't know. The UFC has told it. It just doesn't feel like there's any I mean, sizzle or hype or momentum or anything. You could kind of say that with the UFC's treatment of the entire women's division post Ronda Rousey in a lot of ways. I mean, you know, there's some hype for Chris Cyborg, but a lot of it was already there. There was some hype for Joanna and Jacek. A lot of that was just kind of like organically built. Uh, but yeah, I mean, you could say the same thing with... Uh, you know, most other women's division in the UFC, when Ronda Rousey stopped being the star, they lost a lot of their enthusiasm for it, it seems. That's going to do it for round number two. We'll be right back with round number three.
Well, Ben, in conversation with Yahoo Sports Kevin Ioli this past week, Dana White said on the topic of UFC 229, featuring, as everybody knows, Conor McGregor against Habib Nurmagomedov as the main event, quote, I am confident it will do $2 million on pay-per-view. We've had some regular people pay $10,000 for a ticket. But when I say regular people, I should say some very rich regular people. That's that's the Dana White's concept of regular people. So I assume by regular, he means like UFC regulars, right? Like people they see around the UFC all the time and not like... Does he mean people who happen to be rich without being famous? Well, I just, I don't think he's talking about Johnny Sixpack here, right? He's just talking about people that he, he knows who go to the UFC a lot. Johnny Sixpack is showing up to the uh, fan Q&A asking for free tickets. Yes. That's, that's his maybe, plan to get in. Maybe getting them. <laughs> who knows? Uh, ben, what do you make of this statement, given that we are now a month and a couple of days away from UFC 229? It doesn't feel like the hype train has really gotten cranked up yet, but I guess, does it matter? Do you think that... Conor McGregor's return to the UFC after his lengthy uh, walkabout and this fight with Habib Nurmagomedov, uh, which is maybe both the biggest and most difficult fight on the game board for him at this point. Do you think that it just sells itself or is the UFC a little tardy here in in, uh, cranking up the hype machine? As of right now, it seems like the UFC is hoping that it sells itself, doesn't it? Like we are sitting here. It is September 4th. The fight's on October 6th. So you got just about a month uh, until the fight happens, and it feels like whatever hype is there is the hype that was just uh, like it, it materialized as a result of announcing the fight. Like they already said, they're not doing the world tour thing for this one. That there will be like some kind of promotional stuff. But they're not doing that. the The window has kind of passed for a lot of that stuff because now people need to be in training and actually getting ready for the actual fight. It seems like. The the thinking here is like, well, there's a good enough story here. It involves the biggest superstars. You kind of can't fuck it up. Maybe don't don't try to do too much. Is that what the UFC is thinking? Hmm. Yeah, maybe so. Uh, there's also, between then and now, not counting UFC 228, two additional UFC events. So uh, you got to think that the staff over there at uh, Zufa LLC headquarters uh, is is preoccupied for a couple of weeks. Do you also think some of it might be, remember we talked about when do you make this fight? If you can make it, do you make it soon and be like, all right, let's try to get it on the calendar as soon as possible so that neither one of these guys can fuck it up. Or do you set it farther away so that you have a little time to build to it? And they, they went with soon in October. And now there does not seem to be like a huge opportunity to really like ramp up to it. Yeah, well, it's going to be certainly compared to what we have come to expect from Conor McGregor fights, like kind of a short lead up uh, and sort of a whirlwind headed into this fight. I think that uh, like mainstream media will get on board for it, though. Like, I, you know, given that I work for Bleacher Report, which uh, in just in terms of MMA coverage is about as like general interest as you can get. Uh, clearly, the uh, you know the the people who are two and three bosses above me uh, care about Conor McGregor and you know some of the more dominant crossover storylines. Uh, so I know that we are, I think are prepared to do a fairly substantial rollout in advance for Nurmagomedov versus Conor McGregor. Uh, and I would wager that that means that people like ESPN are probably going to do the same, especially since they're about to take over the UFC broadcast here in a, in a few months. Uh, it just, you know, maybe it's going to be the kind of thing where come fight week, 
or you know a week before the fight, things really start to ramp up and it takes on a life of its own. But you're not going to get the uh, the kind of like world tour extended hype train for this fight that I think you got with fights like Jose Aldo and stuff like that. Although, I mean, if you got a video of Conor McGregor throwing a hand truck through the window of a bus, maybe that's all you need. I don't yeah, know. and that's I think is going to get you pretty far. It is just a matter of, A, letting people know, hey, remember that Conor McGregor guy everybody was so excited about last summer? He's back. Uh, and telling them who uh, your boy Nurmi is and why this is such a big fight. Because that's the part that seems like where the, the storytelling element is going to be a little bit more of a challenge for the UFC trying to reach those non-pay-per-view buying, you know, regular people is we all realize, man, this is a good fight style-wise. It is like the most legit fight you can make for the division and for the title right now. Uh, it has also the personal vitriol storyline behind it. All the pieces are right there. And then you got to get those pieces into a way that makes sense for an audience that is still trying to figure out how you pronounce Nurmagomedov. Right. Well, Conor McGregor up to this point has not had a problem reminding people that he still exists, right? That's sort of like one of the things he's been best at is sort of like keeping keeping the McGregor uh, showboat running, like keeping it going. I think that like he has been so good at the self-promotion part of the game uh, throughout his UFC tenure. I don't doubt that... uh, that he will figure out some ways to get himself in front of a lot of eyeballs previous to this fight, although it's been pretty weird so far. Uh, the only thing that I can recall seeing is his like Instagram post about Chechens and uh, Dagestanis, which I saw, and I was kind of like, I hope we don't get too far into this. <laughs> uh, he's, he's workshopping ideas yeah, right now, yeah. trying to figure out... And we're going to be like, all right, let's try again. Let's maybe try don't for just another one. empty out the ideas notebook but maybe curate things a little bit. Yeah. Uh, it is interesting to note, man, that like by, you know, we're going to put a lot of asterisks around anything that Dana White says involving how many pay-per-view buys he expects to have from this fight. But if it sold to 2 million pay-per-views, that would make it the biggest selling UFC event of all time by kind of a wide margin. Yeah. Right now, four of the top selling, four of the five top selling UFC pay-per-views of all time all involve the former plumber from Dublin, Conor McGregor. The top selling of all time is his rematch with Nate Diaz at UFC 202, uh, which, if you believe the estimates, did 1.6 million. So uh, if Habib and Conor went over 2 million, that would be uh, huge. Yeah. It also, though, is interesting for the UFC to, because if Dana White comes out and says, like, and he he puts the, the mark at 2 million, that gives you an idea then later of did you pass or fail? Uh, because saying that far in advance, like exactly what you expect and for it to be like, not just saying like, we think it'll be bigger than any pay-per-view we've ever done. Like how many times have he said that before? But to say, here's the exact number that I think will hit. Then, you know, we're going to find out, did you hit that number or not? At least, you know, we're going to get some estimate about whether you hit that number or not. And that I think will tell us a lot, not only about like where, like the durability of Conor McGregor's brand and how, how into that people still are, but also the UFC's ability to really get behind and say, like, all right, we know we throw a lot of noise out there. Here's one that you actually should pay attention to. Right, and a big part of the UFC's uh, business model at this point is is uh, really popping these tentpole events, right? Like, considering how things are going, you better hope these Conor McGregor pay-per-views sell a shitload of buys because it's kind of like what you are hanging your hat 
on in as insofar as that's your uh, entire approach uh, right now. So like if Conor McGregor has somehow lost some luster, ooh, that's trouble right yes. there. Yeah. Uh, and maybe this is a little uh, a test as to like how many, if any, people that watched him fight Floyd Mayweather will tune in to watch him then fight back in MMA against Habib Nurmagomedov because uh, clearly Dana White is expecting that added notoriety to to help out a little bit because I don't know what, you know, there's probably no other reason to expect Nurmagomedov versus McGregor to be a bigger seller than the Diaz feud, except that maybe some more casual people who liked what they saw in and around the Mayweather fight would, would follow him back. Yeah. You want to do just saying stuff? Sure. Let's do then just we'll get out of here. Stuff. Ben, did you see this week reports that flash entertainment uh, also known as the investment group owned by the uh, the government of Abu Dhabi, just sold its uh, 10% stake in the UFC back to WME IMG Endeavor. I did not see that. It happened, and my response was, wow, just now? I kind of thought that, uh, that Abu Dhabi got out of the game a while ago, but apparently not. So I guess I'm just saying I was surprised to find out that we were still in business with the... Uh, with Flash Entertainment, but maybe it's a good sign that WME IMG is is out here buying even more of the UFC. Just saying. Just saying. Chad, this week I'm just saying, I don't know if you saw this on MMA Junkie today, we have a, a story by Fernanda Prates about uh, where she went through all the workout videos that Tony Ferguson has posted like to YouTube and Instagram and, and social media and stuff. You know your boy T-Ferg, El Kakui, is known to get a little unconventional with his workouts. Hard to watch. Some of it is hard to watch. He's like, you know, you're going to the gym and you see somebody who's clearly just making up their own exercises. Yes. He he is that guy, except actually an exceptional athlete and really good at stuff. I'm just saying, I dare you. I dare you to go through... And watch these videos, watch every single one of them on the page there in the article, and not exclaim to yourself out loud in the presence of no one at least one or two times. Because you can't do it. And You think you're ready for what you see in there, and then you see some stuff that he's doing, and there's no way you will be able to stop from going, dude. <laughs> I'm. I, I. I went through it this morning. I watched the video and I thought, like, okay, here, Tony Ferguson's going to do some Tony Ferguson shit. I've seen it all before. And you click on some of these videos and you just you whisper out loud, "Why? Why are you doing this?" I don't I'm know just, if I can watch it. Man. I'm just saying. Just saying. I mean, I start watching him do that stuff and my knee starts hurting. That's I just. <laughs> It's the problem I have. You're going to have a hard time explaining how you blew out your ACL watching Tony Ferguson <laughs> Instagram videos. Yeah. Anyway, that's going to do it for this week's co-main event podcast. We will be back next week to tell you about all of the stuff that happens at UFC 228. And then uh, we'll start looking ahead to other fun stuff that's going on, including this uh, Fight Night 136 featuring Mark Hunt versus Alexi Olenek. That's right around the corner. I can hear the enthusiasm in your voice for that. So it's one. always nice to have stuff to get excited about. As for right now, though, we are done. We are through. We are out. Like some of the, the Tony Ferguson stuff, I feel like if, if if even he showed up to a gym and did that stuff, they would revoke his membership. Do you think he's just messing with us? Like Tony Ferguson is out here doing his real workout, you know, 
bench pressing with chains over the sides of the bar like everybody else. He does not seem capable of just doing that. Like, it seems like some of these instances, it seems like he has set up for himself, like, where he's going to approach it and you're like, okay, this one looks like it's going to be normal and he can't, he can't do it. He can't restrain himself. I'm just saying he's probably like hitting a tire with a sledgehammer for a half hour or whatever. And then he's like, all right, man, come on, let's make one of those videos. <laughs> People will lose their minds about this one. I'm just telling you, I think that's what you want to be the case, but I don't believe it. Is it a sad commentary that when I think of normal MMA workout, I think of dudes hitting a tire with a sledgehammer yeah, you think of like, and lifting yeah, weights with chains? We're going to obey the standard, well-honed practice of hitting tires with sledgehammers. It's harder as you push it up because the chain uh-huh. comes off the ground and makes yeah. the bar heavier. Yeah. 